This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Anvil Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfields, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. So when it comes to birds, you can divide them up into many categories. There's birds of prey, migrating and non-migrating birds, even birds that don't fly. Well, today we're going to talk about another group of birds, cavity-nesting birds. From woodpeckers to screech owls and chickadees, cavity-nesting birds lay eggs and find shelter inside of cavities instead of building a nest. Our guest biologist, Joe McGee, is here to help with our discussion. And as always, Dr. Major is ready to take your pet questions. To join the conversation, give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 or email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Always remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Hope everyone's doing well this morning. Good morning. Good, fine. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so, Libby, I know that uh, there is an event going on tomorrow at the museum, I think, that we talked about with Nicole last week. Is it the STEM Snowflake? Am I right about that? Yeah, December 14th. Okay. Yes. That's mm-hmm. Snowflake Science. Okay. Very so good. It's tomorrow, isn't it? Yes. And that's uh, geared primarily for teachers and homeschoolers type situation. So you might call in advance and let them know you're bringing a group if you want to do that. But if you want to bring a family of kids, you can certainly do that too. And then a reminder that there is the New Year's Eve glow party for little ones on December the 31st, but it's going to be early. I think New Year's will be at 8 p.m. So that's that's a, that's a good time to, to be out, I think, still on New Year's Eve. So from about 6 to 8, and the kids are encouraged to come in costumes, and if they have glow sticks or a costume that glows, all the better. And uh, they will be dancing for them and all kinds of fun things. And, of course, a little bit of science thrown in there so they'll learn something. And it'll be the last chance to see the exhibit in the dark. Okay. So if you don't want to go to the glow party, then you need to go sometime between, you know, before December the 31st to um, visit that exhibit if you haven't. Or if you'd like one more look, I've got to go by one more time and go through it. Now, that's interesting because, um, you know, I I think I've mentioned on the show occasionally that my brother lives in Pensacola. I go down there to visit him a lot. And uh, in in the last several years, Pensacola had adopted a thing where they had a giant crystal pelican. That's their kind of downtown, one of their downtown icons, I guess. And they would drop the pelican for New Year's Eve. Well, they did it for a couple of years. Then it looked like they weren't going to do it. And they brought it back and they did it. Uh, But last year, they changed and they moved the party, as it were, to the minor league baseball stadium, and they did it at 9 o'clock for families. Uh-huh. And so your story made me think of this, and I'm, which to me is like, it's crazy. It's not, you know, it's not. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Well, this year, that was too late, so now they're doing it at 8.30. So <laughs> maybe they can uh, get a TV and find somewhere in the world where it actually is New Year's Eve, and, you know, live from yeah. Nepal, we're, we're dropping the pelican at the, yeah. but I guess, you know, to get the little kids involved, although my thing would be have something early in the evening for the families, but still have the actual dropping of the thing at midnight. But anyway. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I guess, though, it must be depending on which employees are running the event. Maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
The other funny thing was I the first couple of years I watched it on the local television, and invariably the feed would cut out right at like 10 seconds before midnight. They'd be like 10, 9, 8, and then someone stepped on the cord and you lost the video connection. So, you know, you watch the whole pregame show for hours, and then when it came down to the actual thing, it's like, oh, gosh, well, we missed it. Uh, too bad. So that's why I finally went down there and watched it in person. We mentioned last week, but again, it bears repeating, that uh, Christmas bird counts going on if you're interested uh, probably find something on Google, but kind of get with it. Yeah, because they're starting this weekend, really. So you need to get going with that. And also the Ag Museum has, they've got lots of great things at the Ag Museum, so I always encourage people to go. But uh, particularly, they have the Smithsonian exhibit that's been traveling around the state. We talked about it when we it was at the Pascagoula Nature Center and uh, when it was at uh, Quapaw Canoe Company in Clarksdale, and it's at the Ag Museum now, and it's about waterways and um, the importance of rivers, and, of course, Mississippi's covered up with beautiful rivers, and it uh, talks about economic and recreational and scientific and, uh, you know, nature values of rivers, and so that exhibit's going on over there. For just the next few weeks, so you need to get over there. I don't have an end date on that. but All right. Uh, so we're underway here on Creature Comforts. If you'd like to join our converse- conversation this morning, it's a simple phone call, one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show, animals, at mpbonline.org. So, Dr. Major, Christmas is right around the corner. Uh, and I guess uh, sometimes people give pets as a Christmas gift. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that or maybe some things to think about before one person gives a gift of a pet to someone else? You're saying giving a pet as a gift, right? right. Well, first of all, it, it really needs to be thought out, and we recommend uh, doing some research first. Uh, a lot of it's dependent on children present, Uh age of the person that you're giving the pet to mm-hmm. and certainly uh that all needs to be you need to give some consideration there are some wonderful pets at uh the different uh rescue and adoption groups uh i would suggest looking there and there may be a special pet that somebody has indicated that they want and they've thought about it so yes it, it's it's a good time to give but at the same time uh i would suggest uh being wise when you do it and do the research. Yeah, we've talked about this before on the show that, uh, you know, different pets, dogs and cats have different personalities and traits. And so if you are going to give a gift, you want to research, make sure that the there's a good match there. But some other things why you might consider or reconsider a surprised pet. Uh, the recipient might be allergic. Uh, they might have wanted a different breed or a different animal. Uh, and they might not be ready for that responsibility yet. Yeah. So um, it's, it's better not to do the surprise uh type pet Uh, a lot of times it doesn't work out and i think uh, communication prior to uh, gifting somebody a a pet is quite important now on the other hand giving a christmas gift to your pet that certainly uh, is encouraged and i'm sure that the pets would appreciate whatever it is that they get and and that's that's a big business a lot of the gifts that are given to pets are for the owner uh actually for their pleasure whether it's an outfit, uh, we see more and more dogs that are wearing sweaters, costumes, uh, some very elegant uh, type clothes, if you will. Uh, we had a dog in the other day that had complete uh, 
pajamas on all the way down to the feet and it was it was cute and the dog appreciated it too uh you could tell it was one of those cold days and the dog was perfectly snug and happy uh but it is a good time to uh, think of some gifts for your pet uh and with the christmas season uh upon us uh you know we tend to probably i read something the other day that said that we don't gain as much during christmas and new year's as we do after Christmas and New Year's is kind of strange, but uh, I won't go into the details on that. We're eating the leftovers, maybe. I don't know. We're we're eating the leftovers, and then we justify the fact that we've done that, and it carries on over into January, February. But uh, be careful with any uh, treats for the pet. They should be uh, treats that maybe you've given all along. Uh, Avoid chocolate, of course, uh, for your dogs and cats. and they, we have the traditional Christmas tree uh, with the Christmas tree uh, water and the whatever mm-hmm. the container that you have the tree in. Be very careful with that because some of those uh, chemicals that you might put in to help preserve the tree could be toxic to your pet. And uh, I will volunteer to take any chocolate that anyone wants to give to their cat or dog if they would send it to me instead. That would certainly be appreciated. <laughs> I, saw, I saw a picture the other day, and, of course, this person had cats, and they had the tree all fixed up. And if you look closely, there were two two cats in the tree. Uh, uh, they had climbed into it. And then if you looked a little bit later, uh, the tree was semi-demolished. But uh, <laughs> yeah. that, that that tree was for the cats, I think. <laughs> Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean the cats had anything to do with it. <laughs> no, right? no, yeah. <laughs> let's take a phone call before our first break, and we'll talk to Lena calling in from the Gulf Coast. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Happy uh, Christmas. Thank you. Uh, I have a nine-year-old dog, neutered male, Peanut, and he's the most loving thing. But he likes to lick. He's, he licks. I'm sure it's a, sh- a sign of affection. Uh, any any exposed parts of me, he licks. And is there any way I could, other than pushing his face away and scolding him, uh, to stop this uh, behavior? Does he does he lick other uh, things such as the uh, comforter or the uh, rug or anything like that? I haven't noticed that. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's, that's a good question. It probably is with, for him. It's a thing of maybe grooming and or affection. Uh, how you said this was a nine year old dog, I believe. Yes, sir. And what kind of dog is it? He's a mixed breed. Right. And he's a, a little obese. Uh, he is a medium sized dog. I'd say by his frame and he weighs right. like 34 pounds. Okay. Uh, this would be one of those things that would be fairly difficult. Uh, I don't know. He may. If you use a type of lotion or skin lotion or something, he may be wanting to lick that. Uh, You might try something that would be a little unpleasant for him to lick a few times. What Uh, would that be? Well, the cayenne pepper type sprays that they have uh, for chewing on furniture and stuff like that. It might irritate your skin, though, so I would have some issues with that. But something that might be distasteful, to the dog, but he may, if you use a lotion or something like that, he may be liking that, and you could think about that and possibly change I, that. I don't. Okay. Okay. Well, I, w- I wish I could it. give you more specific information, but... Well, uh, that's, 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 that's a, that's a beginning, and I'll take okay. it from there. All right. Thank you. Take care. Very Bye-bye. much. Thank Bye-bye. you, doctor. Uh, 
Thank, uh, thanks, Lena, for the call. Let's uh, take our first break. Uh, when we get back, we'll invite our guest, Joe McGee, into our conversation. We'll be talking this hour about cavity nesting birds. If you have a recent experience with one of those birds, you can give us a call if you have a bird question. Also, Dr. Major here, ready for your pet question. So give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Craig's on the line from Biloxi. We'll get to that call. During the break, though, see if you can answer this question. What's the difference between a primary and secondary cavity nester? We'll have the answer after the break, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Today we're talking about the cavity nesting birds of Mississippi with our guest biologist Joe McGee. If you have some nesting birds in your area, you can join the conversation and let us know about it. Or if you have a question or comment or pet question, give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Joe, thanks uh, for joining us on the air again. If you would, kind of remind us of your background. Okay. I used to be with the museum for a number of years. was an outreach naturalist with the museum, visiting schools across the state, especially in southeast Mississippi, and uh, I retired a few years ago, and uh, I stay at home now and work on my pollinator plot, and <laughs> cavities for the birds. <laughs> so when we talk about uh, cavity nesting birds, so how would you define that, and, and do we have a lot of them here in Mississippi? I was interested uh, when I realized this program was coming up about how many we do have, uh, Cavity nesting birds, of course, are birds that nest in a, a cavity or a hole, and they're divided into two groups, usually by ornithologists, primary cavity nesters, those birds that actually create the cavity, excavate the cavity, and that's the woodpeckers, assuming we're talking about uh, cavity nesters that nest in trees, but there's some a few birds that are sort of outliers that don't f- fall into that category. But anyway, the primary cavity nesters are the woodpeckers, and we have eight species of woodpeckers in Mississippi, and all of those breed in the state except for one, the yellow-bellied sapsucker. They're here just in the wintertime. They're, they're a cavity nester, but uh, they don't nest in Mississippi. And then the secondary cavity nesters are the birds that make use of the real estate that the woodpeckers have created in a dead tree or a dead limb on a live tree, and those include some of our most familiar birds. And there's about there's a total of about 29 what I would call regular cavity nesters, including the woodpeckers. One of the most familiar cavity nesters is the eastern bluebird. I'm sure almost everybody who listens to this program is aware that the eastern bluebird is a cavity nester. Uh, another one that most people are familiar with, it's not in the state right now, but it'll be coming next month, late next month or middle of February, and that's the purple martin, one of the earliest of our neotropical migrants to return in the actually it's late winter it's uh when they show up uh, but those are t- those are two good examples of secondary cavity nesters all right okay <laughs> all righty uh we have got some calls to get to uh let's start with uh, craig who's called in from biloxi thanks for holding on craig you're on the air with us yeah good morning yeah i learned last week that uh possums eat a lot of ticks and i think bats <laughs> eat a lot of mosquitoes. I was wondering if there's any other birds that eat a lot of uh, vermin that, that are harmful to man. And uh, and can you say, help, help save New York from their exploding rat population? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, I don't know if we can do much for New York. <laughs> they uh, probably don't want a bunch of big snakes, uh, do they? <laughs> birds that eat birds. Well, yeah, uh, our birds of prey, our diurnal birds of prey, the hawks, eat rats and mice. There's a red-shouldered hawk hanging out near my house. There's some open fields near where I live. And uh, not infrequently, I see that bird eating what appears to be a, a mouse, what we would call a field mouse or maybe a... There are hispid cotton rats in my area and maybe eating one of those. At night, we have the owls, the uh, great horned owl, barred owl, the little screech owl, which I bet you screech owls nest right around the studio or occur around the studio. They, they occur in urban areas. They eat mice, large insects. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of vermin you were referring to, but... <laughs> well, well, well any, anything that's going to eat your garden or... or oh, or, uh, sure, yeah. Mockingbirds, <laughs> bluebirds, brown thrashers, Carolina wrens, they all eat insects, some of which can be harmful to, or, or do damage to our garden or our crops. Yeah, yeah, the, my, almost yeah, any bird you want to... He said they help with the slug. What, what was that? Chickens help. Has chickens, and he said they help a lot with bugs. That that could be, yeah. That, I've heard guineas do that. I don't know, guinea fowl. And um, the flycatchers um, will eat mosquitoes for sure. Yeah, uh, and we have there's one flycatcher present routinely or yeah regularly in the wintertime, the eastern phoebe, and it's it's one of those outliers. It's sort of a cavity nester, not exactly. They nest sort of on top of a. A cavity on a horizontal surface that might be on your porch, top of a porch column, or they nest under an awning at my house. But yeah, they. I've, I've got them under the eave, the back of our house. Mm-hmm. We've got several nests. And that's really interesting. You know, back in the early 80s, the only place you could find them breeding in Mississippi was the northeastern part of the state. The most southerly eastern Phoebe nest that I was aware of occurred in Octibahaw County, which is sort of the southern edge of the northeastern part of the state. But now they nest all over the state. I'm not sure if they nest in the coastal counties or not. Maybe somebody down there knows. But almost every bridge in central Mississippi has got a Phoebe nest under it in the summertime. And I'm hearing from everybody, uh, like Libby's got them at her house. Tom Mann, a fellow at the Mm -hmm. zoologist at the museum, he's got them at his house. I've got them at mine. They're just... (laughs) They're, they're everywhere now, it seems. All right, uh, Craig, thanks for your call. Let's uh, move on next. We've got uh, on the line Eugene calling in from Ridgeland. You're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. All right, let's uh, check on that. Hopefully we'll get Eugene on the line with his question about a pet a little bit later. We'll see if we can work that out. If you'd like to call in with your, con- uh, with your question or comment, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline dot org. So, Joe, I imagine that not all cavities are created the same. If you could maybe give us some ideas of where the birds are are building these cavities. Okay. Usually, the woodpeckers will excavate a nest in a dead tree, and that points out the importance of having. They're called snags, of having snags, and a healthy woodland will have snags standing around. If they can't find snags, they can't find a place to excavate their nest. They will also use uh, dead limbs on a live tree. I've had that happen. I once saw red-bellied woodpeckers excavate a nest in uh, a water oak tree that was still living, but the the limb that they were using was actually dead. So dead trees uh, and... uh, if it's in the woods, or say a slight clearing in the woods, that might create a cavity. Say a red-bellied woodpecker might excavate a nest cavity in a dead tree in a, in a clearing in the woods. 
then great crested flycatchers might use that nest in the summertime when the woodpeckers are through with it. Um, and is it always uh, something or other things, maybe other than a tree? Do they ever, you talked about some of them being in urban settings. How do they go well, about making a cavity in a city? Okay, for instance, there's a bird called a house finch, which, by the way, is another one that didn't even occur in uh, Mississippi back in before the 80s. Uh, it's a native bird, but it was native to the, to the western part of the country. They will nest in, uh, they don't have to have a woodpecker hole necessarily to nest in. They will cr- build a nest in ivy, say, real thick ivy growing on a wall, or in a hanging plant, perhaps, on a carport. But they will use cavities. They're kind of universal. They're not real particular, and that's probably one of the reasons they're so successful. They don't have to have a woodpecker excavated cavity in a dead tree uh, for, uh, for a nest. You know, um, Carolina wrens and chickadees and tufted tip mice, they will nest a, a bucket, a yeah. flower pot, a watering can, a friend of mine once, a shoe. A yes. friend of mine once told me that if you stand still long enough, a Carolina wren will nest in your pocket. And that's just about true. Yeah. I can, it's one of the first birds to nest in Mississippi. Uh-huh. I will uh, go out and I'll see skeletonized leaves on the hood of my truck or stem grass stems or whatnot. I know uh-huh, I look up I have a little uh shelf for the wrens on my carport and I look up and sure enough they've begun the nest. <laughs> Got some more calls to get to. Let's uh, start again with Tommy calling in from Mobile. Thanks for joining us Tommy. You're on the air. Yeah, I have a comment for the lady that I called in about the pet licking her hand. Right. Uh I had some wild animals do the same to me. I think there's a low salt diet. They're licking it for the salt. Hmm. It could be. That's certainly on your skin a lot, sweating and that sort of thing. So, all right, uh, Tommy. Thanks for the suggestion. Uh, maybe I don't know. I don't know if that if that were the case, how that would, uh, how yeah. you know, maybe I don't know. How do you that's, get rid of salt on your skin? That's a good. That's a good point. And certainly, and I didn't mention, but uh, it sounded like this dog was healthy. But she may want to have the dog checked out by her veterinarian. There could be a deficiency of some sort. Uh, but it probably has gotten to be a habit now, mm-hmm. and it's going to be hard to break. Okay. Let's stay on the phone lines. Uh, Jackson is uh, where Arthur's calling in from. Good morning, Arthur. You're on the air with us. Yeah, I was curious about great horned owls. Uh, we hunt up near Belzone in the Delta, and I just, I'm not hearing very many at all in the last couple of years. And I was just wondering if there's any decrease in population or anything like that. I don't know. I'm not really sure about that. Remember now, they are an apex predator. You won't have more than a couple uh, in a given area. Uh, that, in other words, they don't occur in large flocks. But there is, they're not exactly a cavity nester, but there is something you can do to uh, provide nesting for them. Owls don't build nests, They'll, and great horned owls will nest in, uh, on top of an old hawk nest or some kind of horizontal surface like that. I once saw a Boy Scout project where the Boy Scouts had put a platform high up in a tree. It was a wooden platform about, oh, roughly, I don't know, four feet square, perhaps, and uh, a wooden edge around it that was maybe six inches tall, six or eight inches tall, and great horned owls nested on that platform. So if you're really interested in uh, attracting or re-attracting great horned owls to your area, you might try that. Put a, put a, it's, a big, it's a big undertaking to put a platform high in a tree, but uh, uh, that might... Uh, help bring them back in. I don't. I can't say for sure that the population is well, in decline. Do you, or do you have well, any? Well, in work? fact, when I was reading about information that we've gleaned from the Christmas bird counts, just in a very general way, so it wouldn't be specific to your area, but um, great horned owls were 
on an increase slightly and barred owls of a decrease slightly in many places in the country when you look at the whole. Yeah. But in your particular area, that might not certainly and be Sometimes true. you don't have those two together. Right. Great horned owls yeah. can eat barred owls. Yeah. And, yes. And they can yeah. both eat screech owls. So yeah. they, they sort of have to uh, parcel things out. I've read about, you know, with great horned owls that they probably need at least uh, 1, 1,500 acres I'm sure, uh, yeah. for their range. And a lot of that then would depend on the uh, game or whatever that they're hunting. Uh, okay. We've seen before uh, a nest under a bridge for some reason, a little platform there. And uh, uh, they they tend to love to eat skunks. And uh, <laughs> you, you, you can almost pick up if you smell skunks and no skunks around, look for a nest because... <laughs> They they love to eat the skunks, which is fine as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I rarely hear great horned owls in my area. I live in Newton County, but I do hear the barred owls. Uh, but right. now and then I do hear one. And I actually found a great horned owls nesting in Newton County, oh, back in the early 80s, but haven't since then. All right, Arthur, we appreciate your calling in this morning. Let's uh, stay on the phone lines before our next break, and it's Scott and Jackson who's called in. Good morning, Scott. Go ahead, please. Yeah, the other, a few weeks ago, uh, my kid, grandkids are outside in the backyard playing. I saw some bats. I made them come inside. Was that fearful for no reason? Because, you know, you see bats on television. They're the bad guy. So are they really bad? That's a good question. If uh, if you spot bats in the in the backyard or where your kids are playing, do you need to pull them in to be safe? or or? This was in the daytime? Scott, was it during the day? Right. Uh, is it late in the evening time? Yeah. Mm. Uh, was it recently, uh, during cold weather, or when the weather was still warm? I want to say, hmm, it probably in the mid-60s that day, high-60s that day, I believe. You tend to not see them when the weather's really cold. But if if they find a bat fluttering a ground, around on the ground, they shouldn't touch it at all. Right, but right. but when they're flying, I don't think no, there's any right. harm at all. They they They're... Echolocation is so sharp, and they're really efficient at not running into things. They're not going to accidentally bump into anybody, and they are eating mosquitoes and other flying um, insects. Yeah, yeah. moths. They like moths. I ra- yeah. I rarely see bats in the daytime, though, unless I look for them where they're roosting. But. Yeah, but it it. I think he's he's meaning after dark. I'm pretty sure. Cause he's yeah, I, I don't think yeah. they really have anything to worry about. No. Uh, Scott, I think it's one of those cases where a lot of times I think the wildlife is almost as afraid of humans as humans are mm-hmm. uh, as afraid of, of whatever, bats, snakes, that sort of thing. So, And, you know, often you're going to see them flying around a, a, a street light in a neighborhood because they're catching insects that are attracted to it. So that, that would cause no harm at all to anybody. But as Joe said, if you see one and it's yes. on the ground, yes, definitely keep your kids away from that. But if they're just out in the backyard having fun at night and, and the bats are there, don't think you have anything to worry about. No, that's a good thing to have. Yeah. All right. Thanks for the call, Scott. Let's uh, take another break. When we get back, we will continue our discussion. Our guest today, biologist Joe McGee. We're talking about cavity nesting birds. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Another thing to think about during the break, what animals often target birdhouses for a meal? We'll have that answer for you, so stay tuned.
Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Annual Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest today for the show is biologist and friend of the program, Joe McGee. We've been talking about cavity nesting birds. If you missed any of today's program, you can always subscribe to a podcast using your favorite podcast app, or you can download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone. Then you get to listen to all the programs on MPB Think Radio on your schedule. Again, if you'd like to join our conversation, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Call us at one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can email the show as well. It's animals at mpbonline.org. So, Joe, before the break, we were going to talk about or asked about uh, birdhouse predators. But I guess first we m- might establish that is a birdhouse a nice place or something that these cavity nesting birds would seek out and possibly use? It can be if it's properly made. If it's properly made and... uh and by properly made, I mean made out of good wood like cypress or cedar, something like that, and put together with wood screws, and then installed in an appropriate habitat. For instance, if you want to attract eastern bluebirds, you'd probably put it in a fence row near an open pasture because they're birds of the open country. If you want to attract Carolina wrens, you might actually put it on, on your house or on your carport, as I have done. If you want to attract uh, great crested flycatchers, you might put it in an area where there are a few trees, uh, sort of an open woodland situation. So, yeah, they will use it because I think that considering how fast birds come to a birdhouse, the cavities must be in short supply. That's what it's all about is the cavities. And there's only so many snags for the woodpeckers to excavate. And, by the way, the woodpeckers themselves don't build a nest. They just rely on the residual sawdust that's in the you know in the hole once they get through making it. Uh, yeah, they make the nest cavity, but they don't line it with a bunch with anything, of stuff. With anything, yeah, but then yeah. other birds might. Yeah. And so, and uh, for instance, behind the museum, uh, there's a prothonotary warbler uh, trail, I guess you'd call it, a mm-hmm. nest box trail. Yeah, we have one on the Fanny Cook, too, yeah. And they, they certainly come and use those. There's probably a, a scarcity of uh, natural cavities behind the museum. I did once see, uh, what is the name of the pond, Just behind, the first pond you come to behind the museum? I've just always called it the slough. Yeah. <laughs> the first is up. Is, you don't have to go very far oh, to get to okay. it. okay. Yeah, I know what you're talking I, about. Yeah. I, I don't know if it has a name. But anyway, one year I had some uh, day campers down there. There was a willow tree. It was dead. It leaned over the pond. And downy woodpeckers had nested in it. But when I got the, when the kids were there, the prothonotary warblers were using it. And this is the kind of thing that could happen. Do you remember one summer in the early afternoon, there was a terrible thunderstorm with straight line winds, and it blew that it put it put lines on Nick Winstead's car. Yes. Power lines. On, uh-huh. It was it, and the power went off at the museum. It was hot in the. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the next time I took campers down to see the Prothonotary Warbler nest, it had blown. It was down in the water. I don't think they had laid eggs yet, but it, that's the kind of thing that can happen because they're usually using a dead tree, yeah. and so putting up. Nest boxes can definitely benefit the birds. One year, prothonotary warblers nested in an ashtray out behind the museum. <laughs> well, you know, prothon- I was going to say, prothonotaries are one of those. 
I get a lot of birdhouses for gifts that are, you know, some of them are just strictly ornamental, but prothonotaries don't seem to care. They'll go in most any, as long as it's, they like it suspended and hanging and it's, you know, it's fairly close to the pond and any little, I mean, they, there was somebody gave me one that was a PVC, made out of PVC pipe and brightly colored and they were all over that. They like gourds. They are not picky. No, they'll They're, use a, a bluebird nest box uh, mm-hmm. if it's down near the swamp or near the, yeah. the water where they hang out. See, blue, oh, yeah. the warblers, the prothonotary warbler and the bluebirds uh, occur in very different habitats. Bluebirds like open, fairly dry habitat, if you will, and then the, the uh, prothonotary warblers are in swamps and, that, yeah. and related habitats. And if you're given bluebird boxes and you don't have the ideal habitat for bluebirds in your yard, I would say go ahead and find a place that you can watch them and put it up and you'll get something in there. Or put it up and if tufted titmice nest in it, that's fine too. That's you don't, fun it's, to watch. It's, yeah, it's a surprise. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, chickadees. Uh, or chickadees, yeah. Yes. It, it's fine. That's on, fine. It doesn't have to be bluebirds. But on, on a different note, uh, a lot of birds are very opportunist, you know. I've seen a vulture nest in a, just a stump that was uh, yes. hollowed out kind of. And in a barn, just on the flat floor. I, when I was thinking about you know cavity nesters today, I, I got out the Mississippi bird list, the official bird list from the MOS, and I started going through anything that might be a cavity nester, and I checked off black vulture. They used to nest in our old house after we moved out of it. Hmm. But, Which well, I guess is a large cavity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they <laughs> must be doing quite well. If you look at the uh, the billboards out on along the Pearl River, headed down I-55 to the stack, there's Lately, there's probably been about 50 to 75 hmm. uh, different billboards. I count and try to see who's got the most, which, <laughs> which attorney's got the most vultures uh, <laughs> <laughs> on, on the side. <laughs> oh, should we pursue that? <laughs> it's a competition. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, we, we need to leave that one alone, but that's interesting is which which lawyer has the most It gives me something to do when I drive Oh, by. dear. Okay. <laughs> we had a wonderful summer once when Emily was small because a, a tree had fallen down in the field down from the house, and a, a vultures nested just in the top of that tree right in the middle. But there was a certain place where we could get and with binoculars and see the fluffy white babies and the whole thing. It was, it was really fun. So uh, we're going to talk in, in just a few minutes about ways to protect your birdhouse from predators. Some of the predators that you might encounter would be cats, snakes, raccoons, squirrels, rats, mice, bears, chipmunks, those <laughs> sorts of things. But we do have some calls to get to, so we'll get to that in just a minute. But first, let's invite James in the uh, on the line from Gulfport. Good morning, James. You're on the air with us. Hi, uh, this is yeah, James. Uh, I have a question that uh, has been... Uh, in my mind for some time, and I've been reluctant to call you because it seems silly in a way. Someone told me that you cannot feed milk or ice cream to a cat and that it will make them sick. And uh, I believed them for a while and stopped feeding my indoor cat those items. But then I thought, well, the cat loves these things. And so I give the cat milk and ice cream and she doesn't get sick. So is that a true statement? I would say that uh, it's kind of like with people. There may be some cats that are lactose intolerant, and you could be opening up a situation of uh, gastrointestinal problems. However, I'd say that most cats can take some milk. I'll always remember uh, National Geographic's from year back, years back. I'm talking about probably in the 50s. 
and there was a photograph of this guy that was in a dairy and he was milking his cow and the cat was standing up on his back legs and he was milking the cow and the cat was taking it straight from the cow. <laughs> but uh, I'd, I'd say that be careful with that. Don't overdo it. And uh, in most cases, it doesn't cause a problem. But I do feel that some are lactose intolerant. Okay. All right, uh, James, thanks for the call. Okay. Not, well, that answers my question. I appreciate it very much. Yep, you're welcome. Not a, not a bad question at all because, that you know, we typically think of kittens and milk and that sort of thing, although, <clears throat> like humans, probably ice cream in moderation is the best idea. Uh, earlier we were talking about barn owls, and William from Starkville is on the line to continue that discussion. William, thanks for calling this morning. Go ahead, please. Morning. Uh, barn owls are, are such a magnificent uh, sight. <laughs> In the darkness, if you're lucky enough to see one, I, I recall how how they seemed like a seagull through the trees in the in a. I guess it must have been moonlight because they were quite quite. That was forty fifty years ago, and I there used to be a a tree next the right in the middle of a campus at Mississippi State University that had uh, had barn owls in it uh, year after year, but it got destroyed by the expansion of the stadium. I haven't seen a barn owl here in, in, as I say, in 40 or 45 years. And I just wondered if uh, if they're still common elsewhere. Uh, and uh, you might comment on that. I, they're, uh, um, I knew where there was a house, come to think of it, a barn, essentially a barn. It was an old school. It was essentially a barn. And one other question, if you know the answer, the semantic significance or meaning of the word uh, prothonotary. I've always wondered whether that had some sound like somebody's name. It's, it's um, um, not unlike the name cardinal. It, it's, it has a, a connection to the Catholic Church, the prothonotary, and I'm not exactly sure what it means in that color, but it's, come, it's the bright yellowy gold color. Of their Kevin's robes, look the it ro- up over here, but of yeah. the robes that the yeah. that they yeah that they wear yeah, and uh, the old name for prothonotary warbler, which in my family we still use, is a golden swamp warbler, and it's mm-hmm. so descriptive that we've kind of gone back to that and use that. When yeah, we I like that name better. It. I golden like that. Swamp it's warbler. like yes. you know the swamps are often dark, even on a bright sunny day, and it's like a flame down in there. It is, it, yeah. They're beautiful birds. So the dictionary definition of a prothonotary is a chief clerk in some courts of law, especially in the Byzantine court. Oh. So. so that Well, that doesn't sound like a church official then. I've always heard it was a ch- official in the Catholic Church. Yeah, well, anyway, and that could be. Then, yeah. you know. uh, uh, so thank you, William, for your call. Uh, let's do this. Let's take one final break this hour. Uh, we've been talking throughout the hour with our guest, Joe McGee, about cavity nesting birds. <clears throat> So let's take this final break. Still time for you to work in a phone call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 During the break, see if you can recognize this cavity nesting bird by its song. We'll see if we can figure it out as well. So listen closely, and we'll have the answer after the break.
Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And our guest today is biologist Joe McGee. We've been talking about cavity nesting birds and taking uh, some pet questions as well this morning. Uh, Before the break, or during the break actually, we played the song of a cavity nesting bird. Wanted to see if you could identify it. Uh, Java, could we do it again real quick here? All right, and in this case, Joe, we could not stump the expert because that bird is? A red-bellied woodpecker. The red-bellied? Red-bellied woodpecker, one of our common uh, cavity-nesting birds. And an interesting thing about that, you can tell if you go to the movies, and a movie supposedly shot in the South, filmed in the South, if it's, and they say it's on location, if it's really on location, often in the background you will hear a red-bellied woodpecker. That's something bird, bird watchers do is listen for bird sounds on, and other natural sounds on, mm-hmm. on soundtracks and see if they can identify it. Hmm. Um, and what uh, eagles are usually not eagles. It's usually, usually red-tailed, red-tailed hawks. hawks. Yeah. <laughs> and the frogs you hear are usually uh, uh, a, a frog in California, not, the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not a southern frog. The frog has its... Uh, Pacific tree frog, too. I think it is, one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe, is there a way if you have a woodpecker trying to make a cavity in a tree in your yard, is there any way to deter them or is it kind of like, oh, why would you want to deter it? Uh, <laughs> listen, if it's, if they're really trying to excavate a cavity to nest in, to lay their eggs in, it's going to be a dead tree. There's we have one bird, one woodpecker that excavates cavities in live trees, but that's not going to be in a person's yard. So if the tree is not in danger of falling on the house or the driveway or somebody's car or whatnot, nothing to worry about. They, uh, this time of year when they're pecking on trees, they, you might see them pecking on a live tree. They're looking for something to eat in the crevices of the bark or just under the bark. But uh, they don't, as a rule, excavate nest cavities in live trees. So they're not going to hurt anything. All right. Is there any way to get them from when they're pecking on something that's not a tree, like, say... A light post or something. Ah, uh, that's that's different. <laughs> now, I you bring that up. Yeah. The thing about woodpeckers, they are not songbirds. They don't sing. You know, mockingbirds sing, and the male sings to attract the mate or a cardinal or whatnot. But woodpeckers, not being songbirds, they don't have the you know the anatomy to sing. They peck on something like a tin roof or or a drain pipe. Gutter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right at dawn, <laughs> and this sometimes annoys people. I don't know. Uh, I've I've never had that problem. It is their love song. Yes. Okay, yeah, that's well, their love song. Uh, if you could, if it's something you could move, mm-hmm. you know, just so they don't, they don't have the option. But otherwise, I don't know. Uh, Muffle it in some way where because they're after the the loud sound. You could try you putting hardware cloth around. Say it's a utility pole. Try putting hardware cloth around that. If you put tin around it, you're just gonna make it worse. <laughs> <laughs> I had one that used to. Uh, you'd be trying to take a Sunday afternoon nap, and he would get on the gutter. Mm-hmm. And just continually, there was no nap that afternoon. Could try putting uh, some of these mylar uh, strips that blow in the wind. That might, I mean, I'm not guaranteeing, I've never had to do this. Uh, we had flickers once that kind of drove us nuts yeah, for several I, weeks. I think yeah, it was flickers that actually drilled house. a hole in one, down at Cape Canaveral and one of the <laughs> things that were supposed to go into space. Uh, they called in, remember Jerry Jackson used to be at State, Mississippi uh-huh. State? They called him in as an, the expert to what to do. We can't have woodpecker holes in our rockets. 
Well, now that I understand what that is, I'd a little bit because it used to be in the morning. It used to bother me, and you're right. They and again, I can understand why, but it's quite loud, and they're doing it because they're trying to attract some other ones. So okay, yeah. and it's it's so 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 fast. So it really is impressive when you think about what they're actually doing. You're not hearing that this time of year, are you? No, huh? No. Yeah, it'll be in the sp- later on in the spring. Mm-hmm. Record it and play, put it on your Facebook page, <laughs> and you'll like it better. <laughs> All right, we got another call to get to. Uh, Bill's called in today from Greenville. Bill, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Yeah, several years ago, we had a tree here that was a red-bellied woodpecker would put a nest in there every year, and the tree fell over, and he had never come back. But I do see him. He'll come in my yard. I don't know what they eat, but I think he may be to be at the sunflower seed. But uh, I was just wondering what. What do you have to try to attract them with? Uh, I got the uh, the red belly. He comes here. He had, apparently he likes one of my trees. It's dead. But uh, what do you? How do you get the uh, red headed woodpecker? Come back. The red headed are a little bit tricky to get in the yard. Uh, there's one thing you can try, and this is what the, uh, the, the uh, Strawberry Plains Audubon Center did when they first opened. They actually put a dead tree up near the near the center. They moved a log and put it in, secured it in the ground for the woodpeckers. I don't know, you know, if woodpeckers are using it now or not. Uh, but yeah, woodpeckers like sunflower seeds. They, the red-headed woodpecker and the red-bellied woodpecker both come to sunflower seeds, suet, and other things. Left to their own devices, they'll eat seeds, that, large seeds they find. They'll eat pecans uh, and all manner of insects. You know, during the when the weather's warm. Uh, but red-headed woodpeckers, you often see them hanging around d- dead trees, d- trees that have died from wa- being inundated with water. Uh, say a beaver have dammed up a stream and it flooded an area and the trees there died. That's, that's real good habitat for red-headed woodpeckers. But I'd love to have, I don't have one in my yard right now either, and I'd like to, and I can't wave a magic wand to, to get him to come. <laughs> All right, Bill, thanks for calling. Uh, we appreciate your call. Um, so, uh, Joe, earlier we mentioned the idea that if you have a birdhouse, there are some things that might be uh, predators for the birds that are using the birdhouse. So are there some ways and methods to kind of protect a birdhouse from some of these potential predators? It can be tricky. The worst to get in birdhouses, and I'm not sure everyone realizes this, are cats, house cats. And, of course, the, the best way to stop that is to keep the cat inside. And as Dr. Major has mentioned many times on this program, it's better for the cats. They don't. I'm sure he's seen some gruesome things uh, with cats interacting with automobiles but i once cat proofed a nest box by erecting it on a pole that was about 15 feet tall three feet of it were in the ground so about 12 feet high and attached the bluebird nest box almost at the top the cats weren't even aware and this is neighbors cats and whatnot that roam around in my yard were not even aware that the birds were nesting there the problem I encountered was it's difficult to maintain. I had to take a stepladder out to, to, to maintain the box. To, mm-hmm. You had to, uh, just before the new breeding season starts, clean out the old nests and so forth. Uh, and then Hurricane Katrina took care of all of that. It blew a limb over on that nest box and everything came down. And I've never put it quite that high. So what I did now is... Uh, my bluebird nest box is well behind my house at the edge of a hayfield where cats, I don't think, I can't say with absolute certainty, but I don't think cats roam there. Uh, it seems to be okay. So that's for cats. For snakes and raccoons and so forth, there are uh, predator guards available. Some, I, possibly from Forrester Supply, 
I yeah. think may have them. Or you could check with other. Uh, is it okay to mention mm-hmm. Wild Birds Unlimited? <laughs> yes, <laughs> so definitely. They would. Yeah, they they could probably check, help yeah. you out with a, a yeah. predator guard. And I'll have to mention my what I called halos. We I used uh, barbed wire and put it like a couple of halos around my bluebird boxes when there were cats that were. They had successfully entered some of mine, and it seemed to help tremendously. And the bluebirds liked it because mm-hmm. it was just additional purchase. Yeah, that wouldn't phase them. And yeah, so you could try that, ringing it, but, you know, and I've, I went ahead and thought that it probably needed to be barbed wire instead of just wire for yeah. the cat. For squirrels, you need to have the house so it's not near trees because they can jump on the house. Right. Yeah, squirrels are really bad about chewing on the, the box. And enlarging the yes. holes, yes. All right. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman. So for Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield and our guest Joe McGee, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned because up next, it's our Thursday 10 a.m. show, AutoCorrect, with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.